0: All right, let's begin. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on us uh, this evening again as we try to decipher some of the strange uh, language and the purpose and the meaning of this book of Deuteronomy. Help us to see what it means not only for the people of its time, but how it applies to us today because many of the conditions are the same. Uh, some of the, the same events and problems are going on. So help us then to really apply what we've learned to us today. So we ask your blessing on our efforts, not only today, but as we go forth studying this particular book. And we just give you praise and thanksgiving and all thanks in Jesus' name. A couple of things. Last week we didn't get to chapter 8 as uh, we had originally planned to. And that is because you just asked so many wonderful questions and all of that. So we're going to cover 8 this evening. And in a way it makes a nice transition from what we were discussing last week to what we're going to be discussing tonight. So I don't think that there is anything lost and uh, in a way we will probably gain because hopefully, as I've said before, you've got to learn to bring forward what you've already learned and apply it to uh, whatever you are currently studying. And that's not only true for the book of Deuteronomy but for all of Scripture. You can't just set one book aside And say, well, I've read that, I understand what it says, now I'm done with it and I'll put it away. No, no. In your mind, you've got to bring that forward because all of the books of the Bible are connected in some way. They all point to the event of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Now, you might say, well, gee, that's a stretch. Uh, I don't see that in the book of Deuteronomy at all. No, but the purpose, the purpose of God being behind these people and pushing them into obedience or trying to get them to understand what obedience is all about and how it is uh, practically synonymous with the word love of God is because He is in the implementation stage of his plan of salvation. Remember the plan of salvation really, well, actually it really started way back uh, with the Adam and Eve uh, story, but it was not implemented in a true fashion until the call of Abraham, and then more so by Moses and all of Moses' followers. Now this book, and that is why the Deuteronomist felt that it was important enough to revise and repeat the teachings of Moses so that the people of the eighth and ninth century would take it seriously, because up till that point in time they hadn't, as we will read here in uh, chapters eight and nine, uh, the prosperity that reigned after the time of David and Solomon got the people to thinking, well, they were so wealthy and they were so self-sufficient that they didn't need God. And I think uh, you could apply that very much today, to our society today. We've gotten to the point where we can clone animals and we can do this and we can do that and we can speak to each other virtually instantly. Uh, So why do we need God? Well, as you'll see going through, everything depends on God in some way or other. And God's patience, although it is infinite, his acceptance of our lack of love is not infinite. There is a limit. And that is what Deuteronomy is really trying to tell the people of its time and of us our time today. Remember in the chart that I gave you, or the little illustration that I gave you on the four periods of Old Testament history. Periods two, three, and four start out with God's favor and God's help, but they all end in disaster. And the final one, the final or fourth period ends in final disaster of the Jewish people by God's withdrawing his covenant that he renewed over and over and over again but said this is the last time and once they rejected his son he withdraws the covenant forever. So that should send a message not only to the Jewish people but everyone that we have to take what he says seriously and not just set it aside as something that, oh, we don't need now because we are so self-sufficient and we have uh, the capability of doing so many things that we always attributed to God. Well, we have to recognize that we owe our very life to God. And that if we don't take what he says seriously enough we could end up in the same way that the Jewish people did in the year 70 A.D. when and it's interesting, you know, it was the Jewish people who manipulated the Romans into crucifying Christ. But it is the Romans in a way who turned the tables and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. So it was uh, sort of a a turning of uh, the tables on the perpetrators. And in a way, that's God's message that enough is enough and I'm not going to take it any longer. All right? And he withdraws the covenant destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, never to be rebuilt. And so for 2,000 years, or almost to 2,000 years, until the United Nations steps in in 1948 and gives Israel back some land. And look what they've done with it since then. So, with that as a preamble, let's uh, go on to review chapter 8, if you will. Before we begin, is there any great questions that you just have to get out and ask anyone? All right. If we go back a little bit, chapter 7 was really, and again, you've got to constantly keep in mind that the Deuteronomists are not memorializing what Moses said. That was done in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. What they're doing is repeating it. They're saying, hey, people, pay attention. And it's, uh, let me give you a little example. We've just republished and distributed or made available if you didn't get a copy of the Lenten Regulations. Now, the Lenten Regulations haven't really changed in years. But each year, we republish them. Why? Because people have a tendency to forget them or don't understand. And then they say, well, nobody told me. But did they ever make an effort to find out? No. That's right. And that's the problem. That's why we republish the Latin regulations almost every year. And that's what Deuteronomy is doing here. It's gathering not only the sayings of Moses, but all of those that were attributed to Moses, whether he said them or not, down through the history from the 15th century B.C. down to the... 8th and 9th century B.C., 700 or 800 years. And that's where most of the regulations that are in here and that you'll be reading, uh, particularly in the next couple sessions, came from. Uh, If you think about it, where would the people wandering in the desert for 40 years, you know, there was no Walmarts nearby, uh, to go and get purple tassels, which Moses says that you should put on your foreheads and on the corners of your capes or clothes. Okay? Well, you've got to stop and think that in this book, not all of what is purported to be Moses' words were actually spoken by Moses. Much of that came from his followers later on, but it was put back as if Moses said it in order to lend credence, strength, or authority to the book itself, all right? That was a cultural thing of that time period. And for many years later, even our gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, primarily Matthew and uh, Mark, We are not certain that Matthew actually sat down and wrote that gospel, nor Mark actually sat down and wrote that gospel. And probably not, because they're so well written that it appears that they were written by scholars who took the words and the preachings and the teachings of Matthew and Mark and then put it together. Maybe Matthew and Mark reviewed it and said, yep, that's great let's go with it, and so forth. But that's why when you open your books to the Gospels, it doesn't say, or usually doesn't say, the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Matthew. It's a Gospel according, according to Matthew, or according to Mark, meaning that there is the possibility that it was actually written uh, by someone else who was a follower of these men and then took their teachings and writings and put them together in what we have and recognize today as the Gospels. All right. uh, that's not probably true with the Gospel of John. Uh, although, if you look at the various writings of John, not only the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, but also the book of Revelation, and the two letters of John, you'll see that the styles are quite a bit different. And in many cases, uh, scholars over the years have debated whether John actually wrote uh, Revelation. Well, we kind of think it is because the wording and the language is similar, but there are enough differences to indicate that somebody else was involved. What difference does it make? What is said and the message is what is important, not necessarily who wrote it. Uh, let's, let's begin at chapter 8 on page 30. There's an interesting point that is made here sort of subtly, uh, but it's worth noting in the first verse of chapter 8. Be careful to observe all the commandments I enjoin on you today. He's not talking about a specific day. He means now. Alright? Not tomorrow, not down the road, not when you're ready, but now. Alright? And that's repeated three times in chapter 8. You have it over, if you'll just jump over to a uh, verse 11, I enjoin on you today. And then over on the next page, verse 19, it doesn't say today, it says this day. And it means now. Don't wait. Don't put it off till you got a better opportunity or time, but now. Get busy now. Be careful to observe all the commandments I enjoin on you today, that you may live and increase. And that kind of sums up what the book of Deuteronomy really is all about, obedience. We've said before that obedience is synonymous uh, with love of God and recognizing God's sovereign dominion over all of us. That you may increase and may enter into and possess the land which the Lord promised on oath to your fathers. Remember now for 40 years, the Lord your God has directed all your journeying in the desert so that, so as to test you by affliction and find out whether or not it was your intention to keep his commandments. He therefore lets you be afflicted with hunger and then fed you with manna. A food unknown to you and your fathers. In order to show you that not by bread alone does man live. But by every word that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. Where have we heard that before? That's uh, Jesus' uh, temptation in the desert when he responds to the devil. He's using that quotation. And that is something that the church has always taught, that if you are tempted in some way by the devil and cannot seem to shake the temptation, find a verse of scripture such as this that is meaningful to you and throw it back at the tempter. what chapter 8 is doing here is reminding the people of the 8th and the 9th century of the times in the desert when they were suffering from lack of food and water God always came to the rescue God always was there for them he might let them go hungry for a while which he did Or thirsty for a while, which he did, to see if they would finally get around to asking him. You know, because they felt they were so self-sufficient, they didn't need to do that. I've heard people say, well, gee, I don't want to bother the Lord on such a small thing. Nothing is small to the Lord. In fact, I had a, a little discussion here with somebody just the other day. They couldn't understand why Catholics had to abstain from uh, meat on Friday. Now what's wrong with eating meat anytime? Anything? Anyone? Have a you know? Why should we not eat meat on Friday? I tried to explain it wasn't the meat at all. Meat is only a symbol. And hopefully you people will understand this. Meat in this case of fasting from meat on Fridays on Ash Wednesday and all Fridays of Lent is symbolic of your willingness to obey the rules and the teachings of God and the church. It is only symbolic. Alright? And to disobey that is wrong and sinful Maybe not a great sin, but nevertheless, it is wrong because what you're doing is disobeying a rule put there for your own spiritual good. The church is not concerned whether you like roast beef or steak or pork or lamb or whatever. The concept and the whole idea is a symbol of your willingness to give up something for the honor and glory of God and your indication of obedience. Going over to verse 6. Therefore, keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good country, a land with streams of water, with springs and fountains, welling up in the hills and valleys, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and figs and pomegranates, of olive trees and of honey, a land where you can eat bread without stint and where you will lack nothing, a land whose stones contain iron and whose hills you can mine copper, But when you have eaten your fill you must bless the Lord your God for the good country he has given you. Be careful not to forget the Lord your God by neglecting his commandments and decrees and statutes. In other words, since the time of David and Solomon prosperity was abundant in Israel and these people as I've said before We're neglecting God and what the Deuteronomists are trying to say now in slightly different words is remember that you once spent a great deal of time in the desert and God took care of you there. Will he not take care of you in a location or place of green pastures and running streams? That's the message that they're trying to get across. Excuse me. I lost my place. Oh well. All right. Be careful not to forget the Lord your God by neglecting his commandments and decrees and statutes, which I enjoin on you today. If you look down about two thirds of the page down in the commentary section, Uh, the second main paragraph, second verse, or second line of sentence, it says, In each of these commands, the word today emphasizes that every generation of Israel needs to remember God. Forgetfulness will lead to disaster. And it did. Over on the next page, you have the same wording. Uh, Verse 19, but if you forget gods, uh, I'm sorry, if you forget the Lord your God and follow other gods, small g, serving and worshiping them, which they were doing, I forewarn you this day that you will perish utterly. Like the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so shall you too perish for not heeding the voice of the Lord your God. And that's exactly what happened. Okay. Because they neglected this book. All right. Remember, it was written in the 8th or ninth century. But it was totally ignored. The people were enjoying the good times, prosperity, etc. And so they said, oh, we don't need all of this stuff. You know, Moses, that's passe, and so forth and so on. Let's move on. Okay. Uh, and the Deuteronomists are saying no. The words of Moses are applicable to all times and to all people, including us today. All right? But they said no, we're not interested. So what happens is that in the latter part of the 8th century, 722 B.C. to be exact, the Assyrians overrun all of the northern kingdom and take all of the able-bodied people uh, off to Assyria. And then they take all of the jailbirds and the misfits and the no-goods uh, so forth and so on from Assyria and bring them back to the northern kingdom, particularly around Samaria, and plant them there. In other words, it was a way of getting rid of the misfits and the, those that they didn't want and they brought in all of these uh, able-bodied people from northern Israel never to be seen again they never returned all right and that's God's way of saying i mean what i say enough is enough all right and of course the people that were brought back tried to assimilate but they were never accepted by the jewish people and that's the reason why the Samaritans at the time of Jesus were so disliked. Okay? Because they weren't true Jewish people. Even though they tried to assimilate from the time of the uh, latter part of the 8th century uh, down to the time of Christ, they still were not accepted. Chapter 9 talks about the dangers of success and prosperity. Hear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to enter into and dispossess nations greater and stronger than yourselves, having large cities fortified to the sky, the Anakim, a people great and tall. These were the people who during the time that the Israelites spent in Egypt three or four hundred years had drifted into the promised land and had set up uh, and made themselves at home, so to speak. But they were from the north. They were much larger in stature and many of them were fair-haired and blonde or whatever. Uh, they were quite a bit different in appearance than the Jewish people and the Jewish people sort of um, applied the term Anakim which meant giant to them uh, they weren't giants but they were people from the north and traditionally even today people from northern Europe are much larger in stature than people from southern Europe and that's not too unusual Okay. So that's what the Anakim word is uh, all about here. You know of them and I have heard it said of them. Who can stand up against the Anakim? Understand then, today it is um, the Lord your God who will cross over before you as a consuming fire, etc. We've talked about this before. Uh, and... Of course, this is sort of an after-the-fact type of thing, but what the writers here are bringing this up again, because what's happening is that the Jewish people of both the north and the south are being oppressed by the Syrians in the north and the Egyptians in the south. And rather than fight them, they are trying to make alliances with them. If you go to the second book of Kings and read chapter seventeen or no, sixteen, seventeen, uh King Ahaz is trying to uh make an alliance with Egypt against the Assyrians. And then you have people in the north that are making alliances with the Assyrians against the Egyptians. You know, and what the people here are doing, what the writers of Deuteronomy are doing, was reminding these Jewish people that it was God who gave them this land and back in the 15th 14th century BC after the time of Moses when the Israelites first crossed into the promised land, God gave them all of that land and helped them to settle it, alright? Even though there were other people there, uh, not all of them were dispossessed or or slaughtered or anything, although uh, there's a lot of impression that says that. Now they are, the reverse is happening. And God is saying through the Deuteronomist, this is not the way. I will protect you and I have a plan and you've got to trust me. And they say, no, we're going to do it on our own. But I'm asking you to read uh, for your home uh, reading assignment out of the second book of Kings. Uh, it will tell you uh, very briefly about some of the conditions that are going on and it will also talk about King Hezekiah and King Josiah, who found this book after it was taken to the southern kingdom. Remember, this was written in the northern kingdom. It was taken to the southern kingdom after the uh, Assyrian conquest of the north, and it was spirited away in the temple because even the people in the south wouldn't accept it until the Babylonian exile. And then they finally get the message. They finally get religion. Okay? And then they say, Oh, now we understand why we're here. Okay? And so once they come back from Babylon to Judah or Jerusalem, then they try to pick up the teachings of Moses from this book and carry on from there. And that's pretty much where modern Judaism has its base. Uh, even though they still sort of honor and almost worship uh, the books of Leviticus and, and uh, Numbers, uh, it is Deuteronomy that they follow. If we go over to... Uh, chapter 9, verse 7. We have a repeat of the story of the golden calf during the time of Moses and the Israelites wandering in the desert. All right? And it's reminding these people how obstinate and how unruly and evil they can become even when Moses was at the top of the mountain talking to God and getting the Ten Commandments. At that very moment of union of God and man through Moses, they were sinning to the highest degree down in the, uh, down in the valley, so to speak. Okay. Bear in mind that you do not forget how you angered the Lord, your God, in the desert. From the day you left the land of Egypt until you arrived in this place. This place meaning the uh, edge of the Jordan just before the entry of the people into uh, the promised land. Again, this is a repeating of that story. You have been rebellious towards the Lord. At Horeb, or Sinai, you provoked the Lord that he was and that he was angry enough to destroy you, when I had gone up the mountain to receive the stone tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with you. Meanwhile, I stayed on the mountain forty days and for forty nights without eating or drinking, till the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone inscribed by God's own finger with a copy of all the words that the Lord spoke to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. Then, at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, when the Lord had given me the two stone tablets of the covenant, he said to me, Go down from here now quickly, for your people whom you have brought out of Egypt have become depraved, and they have already turned aside from the way I pointed out to them, and have made for themselves a molten idol. Well, you know the story. I don't want to belabor the point here. Uh, The purpose, of course, as I said, is to remind these people some of the (coughs) depths of evil that they have come from, but don't go back to that level. That is the purpose here. (coughs) Excuse me. If you go over to 15... When I had come down again from the blazing fiery mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in both my hands, I saw how you had sinned against the Lord your God.
1: You had already
0: turned aside from the way which the Lord had pointed out to you by making for yourselves a molten calf. Raising the two tablets with both hands, I threw them from me and broke them before your eyes. And then as before, I lay prostrate prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights without eating or drinking. This poor guy must be as skinny as a rail after all of those, you know. Because of all the sin you had committed in the sight of the Lord and the evil you had done to provoke him, for I dreaded the fierce anger of the Lord against you. His wrath would destroy you. Yet once again, the Lord listened to me With Aaron, too, the Lord was deeply angry and would have killed him had I not prayed for him also at that time. And then, taking the calf, the sinful object you had made, and fusing it with fire, I ground it down to powder as fine as dust, which I threw into the wadi that went down the mountainside. And then he had to go back up and get a Xerox copy. Now, The whole idea of Moses throwing the tablets and destroying them is not so much just a display of his anger, but it is a display of God's anger in a way. uh, And the fact that God or the tablets actually were symbolic of the covenant that God had made with mankind, beginning way back with Abraham. And so when they did such a horrible thing at the very time that God was giving Moses the Ten Commandments, they were worshiping, you know, an idol. Uh, the breaking of the Ten Commandments was again symbolic of God's anger and willingness to break the covenant. Because actually they broke the covenant. God could have and was tempted to withdraw the covenant at that time. But, you see, his plan of salvation was far more important. And therefore he had to, for his own purpose and for ours, he had to go through with protecting the Jewish people for a time. But once, of course, as I indicated in the fourth period of Old Testament history, once the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ had taken place, there was no need to keep a covenant with the Jewish people after their breaking it so many times. And so God gave them 40 years from the time of Christ's death and resurrection to 70 AD to make up their minds or to change their minds and straighten up and fly right so to speak and when that didn't happen we pulled it for good never to be remade and that is why we talk about the new and eternal covenant at every mass when the priest holds the host and the chalice up, he's talking about this is the blood of the new and eternal covenant. Okay, that is what he's talking about. The new covenant made with all mankind, not just the Jewish people, not any one particular race or nationality, uh, but all mankind. A new covenant made through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we partake of that new covenant when we accept Christ and live according to his teachings. When we abandon his teachings, we can suffer the same fate as the Jewish people. Well, that is something that so many Christians and Catholics do not understand. Then they'll, you know, they'll do what I call smorgasbord religion. Well, I like this, but I don't like that. Well, I'll believe this, and I don't, well, I don't want to believe that. And uh, just like this person uh, that I was talking to uh, recently about why do Catholics have to um, abstain from meat on Friday? Well, I can't see that. I just can't accept that. That's not, uh, you know, something that I want to believe. Well, you see, if you want to belong to the club, you got to obey the rules. That's what it's all about. All right? But it is not only belonging to the club, it is following Christ into heaven. And for those people who want to do their own thing, they may not get there. Simply because... They felt that they could do without this and that and something else. But the easy stuff they might like and so they'll accept that. But, uh, you know, the hard stuff, mm, no, I don't want that. So, and sometimes you can understand when there are scandals and other kinds of problems within the church and there's often been discussions about some individuals within the church, high-ranking individuals sometimes, will say a cross thing to somebody, which will just tick them off no end, and they never show up at a church door after that. Well, that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that people do speak the wrong things at times, uh, but you got to look past that. You got to look past that. Well, I don't like Father so and so because he doesn't say nice things or he doesn't speak the way I like uh, priests to speak. Well, I don't like to go to that church because I don't like the music. Well, excuse me, D over there. Uh, I don't want to go to this church because you know it's not very clean, etc., etc. That's all beside the point. You don't go to church for those reasons. You go to worship. Worship God, and it doesn't make any difference who the pastor is, who the celebrant is, whether the church is clean or not, whether the music is pleasing to the ear or not. If you are truly worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, or God through Christ, then it shouldn't make any difference. Your faith should always come first, all right? Your relationship with God should always come first. All of the incidentals shouldn't make that much difference. Now they help, I totally agree. Chapters 10 and 11 really talk about the advantages of obeying God, of getting to know God and having a relationship through Jesus Christ. You see, if you don't have a relationship through Jesus Christ, then all of those other little incidentals, father so-and-so or sister so-and-so years ago, not so much anymore, uh, or the organist or, you know, the janitor or whatever, uh, yeah, I can see how those things would bug a person. But if you have a true relationship with Christ, with God through Christ, then those things should not be that important. Okay. And that is what the Deuteronomists are trying to tell us uh, through chapters 10 and 11. So I'd like to go through some of this in detail. All right. At the time the Lord said to me, cut two tablets of stone like the former, and then cup up the mountain to me. Also, make an ark of wood I will write upon the tablets the commandments that were on the former tablets that you broke and you shall place them in the ark see God didn't blame Moses for breaking them because it was really an act of God through Moses to show the Israelites how angry God was with them. See, I will write upon the tablets the commandments that were on the former tablets that you broke. You shall place them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the former and went up the mountain carrying the two tablets. Now the ark of the covenant. Let's read the commentary here because that's somewhat important. To symbolize a renewed covenant between God and a rebellious Israel. Rebellious Israel of the 8th and 9th century. The Lord authorized the manufacture of two new tablets, and this is being recalled here. Once these had been inscribed with the Ten Commandments, they were placed in an ark. A wooden container used to hold these memorials of the covenant. Originally, the ark was a symbol of the Israelites' the Israelite tribe's resistance to the Philistines. And you can read a lot about this in uh, 1 Samuel. In fact, it's a kind of an interesting little story. It ends up with nobody wanting this ark because anybody who captured the ark other than true Jewish people suffered some serious disaster. So after this happened two or three times, whenever the ark would show up in somebody's Uh, neighborhood or little village, they try to get rid of it. And towards the end, uh, they put it in a uh, cart drawn by a donkey and they, you know, sort of uh, whip the donkey so he gets going down the road without any rider there, just so that he'll go to the next town, wherever that is, they don't care, just as long as it's out of, out of their hands. It's kind of a funny little story. Okay. Uh, Originally, the Ark was a symbol of the Israelites' resistance to the Philistines. Later, it was housed in the temple and was considered to be the footstool of God's throne and therefore symbolic of the divine presence. In Deuteronomy, the Ark is simply a container for the tablets of the law. It is obedience to that law which guarantees God's favor. Not any supposed presence of God in the temple. Now, let's review that a little bit. The Ark of the Covenant in the book of Exodus, there are two or three chapters about the building of this Ark. It wasn't just a wooden box as we would think of it, you know, an orange crate or something that came from... Uh, A cast off store or whatever it was acacia wood which was uh, very symbolic something like we would make something out of cedar maybe or some real fine wood and it was inlaid with gold on top and inside and uh, it had two archangels on each side and the center top part was uh, made like a seat and it was called the seat of God and when it was placed in the temple, somewhere around the 10th century B.C., uh, and it lasted there for over 400 years until 587, till the Babylonians destroyed it. Over that period of time, from the time of David, David was the one who placed it into a tent until the temple that Solomon built was ready. And then it was placed into the Holy of Holies, uh, Solomon's Temple. And it remained there as the center of Jewish faith because it was there that God sat, so to speak. All right? It was called the mercy seat. And it was representative of the presence of God. Well, after a while, they took that so literally That it was like that's the only place God was. And when you would go to the temple, you had to be holy and act holy. But after you got, you know, ten feet outside the door, forget about God. You know, he was in there and you could do your thing out here. And that's where the Pharisees went wrong. Because they took it literally that God was only in the temple. Not outside, not in each of the human beings' hearts. So, the whole idea of the Ark of the Covenant uh, got a little out of hand, so to speak. But it was destroyed along with the temple in 587 B.C. by the Babylonians. Never to be seen again. Okay, So, in Jewish synagogues, or sometimes you'll see temples, although they are technically not temples. In Jewish synagogues, they will have a holy of holies, but in them are scrolls of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch or Torah. Okay. Uh, chapters uh, 10, verse 6 through 9 are something sort of out of kilter here. Um, it's says uh, this text intrudes upon the story of Moses' intercession for the rebellious Israelites. Verses 6 and 7 reflect a somewhat different tradition about Aaron's death. Well, let's skip that because it's not really that important to what we're trying to learn and understand today. Um, The answer to Moses' prayer. Israel was not to be destroyed. The covenant was to be reestablished. And all this was a result of God's mercy and love, but also it was necessary for his continuing to implement his plan of salvation. Divine justice called for Israel's annihilation. The Lord's fidelity to the promises made to Israel's ancestors and the Lord's willingness to hear Moses' plea made the continued existence of Israel possible. Actually, it was God's divine mercy overseeing all of this. The Lord's majesty. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God and follow his ways exactly to love and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul? That's uh, pretty much a rephrasing of the Shema that I talked about um, a week or two Uh, ago—the most holy prayer of all Judaism, the Shema. Okay. Let's see. Where am I here? Okay. Yeah. To keep the commandments and the statues of the Lord which I enjoin on you today for your own good. Think. The heavens, even the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God as well as the earth and everything on it. Yet, in his love for your fathers the Lord was so attached to them as to choose you, their descendants in preference to all other people as he has now done. Therefore, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and be no longer stiff-necked. Down in the commentary, it's important, I think, that uh, we point this out here. In the first paragraph, towards the end of the first prayer, <laughs> paragraph, it says, The requirements of God makes the nation have consequences. Israel's experience has shown quite conclusively that God is capable of fulfilling every promise made. If Israel wishes to secure its future in the land, loyalty to God and obedience to the law provide the only way to do so. Obedience to the law provides the only way to secure God's loyalty, all right, and vice versa. Infidelity to the Lord and disregard of the commandments will bring disaster. And that is exactly what happened. If you go down a little bit further, about halfway into the next paragraph, it says among these rituals is circumcision. Now, circumcision did not start with Moses, even though much of the, many of the books uh, sort of imply that it did. It did not. It came about later, but it is now put back as if it was part of Moses' rules. Among those rituals is circumcision, but these observances must go beyond ritualistic activity to transformation of the spirit. Israel entire, uh, Israel's entire approach to God must be overhauled, and that's what the writer is saying about what the Deuteronomist is trying to do. Transform the mind and the heart of the people of the 7th and the 8th and the 9th century, right, from one that is solely dependent on themselves and enjoying the prosperity of the day to something that doesn't exclude that naturally but it should be second to the observance of the laws and obedience to God. Uh, the next sentence in the commentary. One way that people can show how seriously they take their election as the people of God is to accept responsibility for those members of the community whose social and economic status does not ensure their survival. Okay. And I dare say that that is what the church should be doing today is reminding people that they are really on a slippery slope to hell and damnation if they do not obey the teachings of Christ and God. All right? And that's exactly what is happening today. I hate to belabor the point, but so few people really uh, want to accept that. And yet that's exactly what's happening. History is repeating itself. Let's go over to chapter 11. Again, the Deuteronomist is reminding the people of its time about the great things that God has provided for them and to them. Love the Lord your God, therefore, and always heed his charge, his statutes, decrees, and commandments. It is not your children who have not known it from experience, but you yourselves who must now understand the discipline of the Lord your God, his majesty, his strong hand, and outstretched arm. The signs and deeds he wrought among the Egyptians on Pharaoh king of Egypt, and on his land, what he did to the Egyptian army and to the horses and chariots, engulfing them in the water of the Red Sea as they pursued you, and bringing ruin upon them even to this day, what he did for you in the desert until you arrived in this place, and what he did to the Reubenites, the Dathans and Abram, son of Eleab when the ground opened its mouth and swallowed them up out of the midst of Israel. That's an interesting story. If you go to the book of Numbers, chapter 16, um, I won't read it because it's a little on the long side, but in Numbers, it talks about an event during the wandering in the desert when a large group of Israelites began to oppose Moses and Aaron, particularly Moses, and criticize them greatly and say that Moses didn't really have authority from God uh, to speak on behalf of all of the Israelites, and therefore, why should they obey him? That is, why should they obey Moses? Um, And Moses said, well, if you don't think that I speak for God, who speaks to you for God. And they said, Well, we know pretty well what God wants. Uh, we don't need uh anybody like you, etc. And Moses said, Well, let's uh let's have a little contest, you might say, and I'm putting it in my own language, uh words. Um, you make a, a fire and uh set over there and we will sit over here, and we'll see what happens tomorrow. Okay. And so, to make a long story short, on the next day, uh, this group of people say that uh, they don't want to obey Moses, and so the ground opens up, and they fall in, and the ground closes over them, and that's the end of that. I'm. Uh, Cut the story short, obviously, but if you want to read it, uh, chapter 16 in the book of Numbers. It's rather interesting. There's a lot of little interesting stories in that, but you'll see them in uh, the book of Numbers and the book of Leviticus and some of the lesser used books of the Bible uh, because they are really not that important or pertinent uh, to the faith but that's what this is referring to. The gift of rain. For the land which you are to enter and occupy is not like the land of Egypt uh, from which you have come, where you would sow your seed and then water it by hand, as in a vegetable garden. No, the land upon which you are crossing for conquest is a land of hills and valleys that drink in rain from the heavens a land which the Lord your God looks after. His eyes are upon it continually from the beginning uh, of the year to the end. If you then truly heed my commandments, which I enjoin on you today, there's that word again, loving and serving the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, I will give the seasonal rain to your land and the early rain and the late rain, etc. What this is all about is the Deuteronomists are trying to remind the Israelites that while they were in the desert, they could grow very little because of the soil and the lack of rain. But now God has brought them into a land of prosperity. And he is giving them a land that is fertile, and there is plenty of water and uh, proper soil, etc., to grow whatever they want. But don't take it for granted don't feel that because it's there for the use their use and taking uh, that God isn't behind all of it God can snap his fingers and take it all away and that's what essentially they're saying here remember that everything good that mankind has comes from God in one way or another that's true then it is true now verse 18. Therefore, take these words of mine into your heart and soul. Bind them at your wrist as a sign, and let them be a pendant on your forehead. Teach them to your children. Speak of them at home and abroad, whether you are busy or at rest. And write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. Now that is a Jewish custom, and still is. If you enter a kosher home... Or a Hasidic Jew or an Ashkenazi Jew, you will see a little plaque on the door post that has scriptures written on it. And it's a permanent plaque there. Sometimes or most often now done in ceramic of some kind. Okay. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. The uh, pendants at your forehead and uh, your wrist these were scrolls uh, generally made of animal skin or vellum, which is animal skin, um, because they don't deteriorate like papyrus would have. And they have uh, scriptures written on them also to remind people. Now, when Jesus, uh, in the Gospels, talks about the Pharisees and how they enlarged their tassels and uh, their phylacteries, right? That's what a phylactery is. It is a uh, fringe garment or part of a, part of the fringe of a garment, uh, that has a pocket in it and there is scrolls in there, uh, with scripture written on it. And the larger the phylactery, the greater uh, holiness of the individual. At least that is the sort of sarcastic remark that God is, or Jesus is making, alright, and uh, Jesus is saying, beware of the Pharisees, because of that, you know, they're not fooling anybody but that's where it came from the other point in there is about uh, teaching your children that was handed down for centuries uh, from the time of Moses Uh, To the time of somewhere around the 10th or 9th century BC, when Scripture began to be written down. Up till that point in time, it was handed down verbally, quite accurately, and you might say with the hand of the Holy Spirit guiding it, because it came down uh, fairly accurately. All right. So a lot of Jewish laws comes right out of this brief paragraph here. For if you are careful to observe all these commandments. I'm at 22 on the next side. I enjoin on you, loving the Lord your God and following his ways exactly and holding fast to him. The Lord will drive all these nations out of your way and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves. Again, this is uh, sort of after the fact but it is really geared towards uh, warding off any alliance with either Assyria or Egypt Every place where you set foot shall be yours from the desert and from Lebanon from the Euphrates River to the Western Sea the Western sea being the Mediterranean all right now this is of course, these are dimensions that are far, far greater than Israel is today, uh, because the uh, Euphrates River is in Iran, Iraq, rather, thank you, in Iraq, and of course that goes right through the country of Jordan, but in ancient times, Israel covered all of that territory, from the Mediterranean all the way to the Euphrates. And, of course, it changed boundaries frequently, like it has even in the 20th century. Let's go to 26. I set before you here this day a blessing and a curse, a blessing for obeying the commandments of the Lord your God, which I enjoin on you today, there again, A curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way I ordain for you today, now, to follow other gods whom you have not known. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you are to enter and occupy, then you shall pronounce the blessing on Mount Gerizim, which is in Samaria, the curse on Mount Ebal that is fairly nearby are they not beyond the Jordan on the other side of the western road to the country of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah or Arabian Peninsula opposite Gilgal beside the Terebinth of More, for you are about to cross the Jordan to enter and occupy the land which the Lord your God is giving you when therefore you take possession of it And settle there. Be careful to observe all the statutes and decrees that I set before you today. Again, today. All right. Down in the very middle of the page here, in the commentary, it says, Now it remains for Israel to choose Yahweh above all other gods. In reality, there is no real choice. But if Israel abandons Yahweh for what are really no gods, Only misery and disaster will follow. If, however, Israel remains loyal to God, there is no limit to the expression of God's love. That's true then, and it's true today. And that could be taken on a nationwide basis or an individual basis. Any questions? Yes? I'm sorry? That comes from the book of Exodus. When God, well, when Moses asks God at the burning bush scene, what is his name? God said, I am who am, which in Hebrew comes out Yahweh, with a little bit of exception. Because it comes out W-H-Y-H. Well, you can't pronounce that because there's no vowels in there. So you have to put vowels in there in order to be to be pronounceable. Yes. And that's where Yahweh comes from. The word Jehovah comes from a twisted or improper interpretation of that same word. Okay. But the word Jehovah is not in any Bible. It is something that is made up uh, or was made up uh, by some early uh, by some Christians in the 14th or 15th century when the Bible was first translated into English. English. Yeah. Israel is described as a man of rains and fertile land and all. But today is pretty much an arid right? Well, yes and no. Uh, it is in some places, but not uh, because they have cultivated and brought in water. But yes, for a long time. But uh, archaeologists tell us that at one time it was a very fertile area. In fact, that whole area from uh, Iraq over to what is Israel was known at one time in ancient times as the Fertile Crescent. The Fertile Crescent. In other words, it was sort of a crescent-shaped path, you might say. And it's often assumed, whether right or wrong, I don't know, assumed that God made it so because that was the path that Abraham migrated from the land of Ur to Palestine much of a stretch to say that God has abandoned the area because Israel, Israel did not follow the No, I wouldn't say that because you know, <laughs> as we know nature does change over hundreds of years and many lands have changed uh, from arid to fertile and back again over a period of time. So that's more of Human nature than anything. Yes. Yes, Frank. Yes. Yes. Um, Now, when they talk about the renewal of the covenant in here, that is still the old first covenant. All right. Uh, And it was renewed, not changed, but renewed with various people. of God's choosing, down throughout the 2,000 years from Abraham down to Christ. It was after the death and resurrection of Christ, as I said earlier, that God gave the Jewish people approximately 40 years uh, to realize the mistake that they had made. And once they did not accept Christ, and still have not accepted Christ, as Lord and Savior. Messiah. Then he withdrawed the first covenant. But the second covenant. Was then already established. With the followers of Christ. Yeah. And they call that the eternal covenant. Which will never be changed. Right. And the See the first covenant. Was really a sort of a land based. Covenant. Uh, which covered descendants, descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people, really, essentially, uh, land, and God's personal protection. The second covenant promises only one thing, eternal life, through observance and acceptance of Jesus Christ. Period. As reminders... As long as they are reminders, yes. Mm-hmm. Probably to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But human nature has always liked pictures or objects on the walls. We have, you know, caves where ancient man has drawn pictures of animals and so forth. Uh, for some reason or other, human nature seems to like pictures of objects um, so you know it's it's sort of a natural thing to want to be reminded or to remind want to remind ourselves of something that's important to us so a crucifix is fine as long as it's used as a reminder only and not worshiped in itself any other questions yes Uh, Stubborn. 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 Yeah, stiff necked. Stubborn. Yeah. Uh, Ben says, What is is the meaning in this book of stiff necked people? And uh, those are people with stiff neck. (laughs) No. Stubborn. Yeah. Uh, Stubborn or rebellious. You know, stubborn to the point of being rebellious. Yes. Well, you know, that's a Hollywood type of thing. You know, it always leaves you out there wondering, could it be? But no. You know, everybody who is in the know has accepted the fact that it was destroyed along with the temple and everything else in 587 B.C. Yeah. So why bother? But, you know, you'll always have some people who will stir up the pot uh partly because it makes a good story for hollywood um, and you know it keeps people guessing it's you know it's another mystery story well, can ask you more about and, uh, you say that brought, uh, the reason oh. uh, you know, why the oh <laughs> well that's true but you see the parting of and Chet's point is rather interesting you'll always find somebody that will try to give uh, a human or an an earthly explanation of all of God's miracles. And the one, the parting of the Red Sea was due to all kinds of astronomical uh, special events or special effects, you might say. But you've got to remember that there was three partings of the sea, not just one. Okay because there was a parting of, the, not so much the Red Sea, but the Jordan River twice. Once by Joshua and once by Elijah. In fact, twice by Elijah or Elijah and his sidekick, Elisha. So, you know, if they drum up those kinds of explanations for one, could they not apply the same thing to the others? I don't, so. I don't think so. No. You and that's of course what we call faith. You take some things on faith and say, all right, God can do that. Why should I not believe it? Um, but you gotta be careful on that too. No other questions? Any other questions? desert that how Yeah, but you see even even in just the words that you use, part of the, uh, the Egyptian desert was under water. That's true every year with the spring rains overflowing the Nile. It doesn't say how far that overflowing goes, you see. And it may only go five or ten miles at most to either side of the Nile. It doesn't cover the whole desert. Besides, most of the desert is not in Egypt anyways. Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. So you got to be a little careful on, on some of those things and on anything made by Hollywood be real careful. <laughs> Alright. Let's end with a prayer. <clears throat> Lord we thank you for this time tonight. We thank you for the message that you are giving us. That obedience to you to your teachings and to your church is far more important and all the offerings that we could make otherwise. Help us to examine our life during this time of Lent. To understand what we need to do to be on the right path with you. Give us the strength and the courage to open our minds and our hearts to hear what you have to say to each one of us on an individual basis. Give us the strength and the courage to to pray and ask you, help us, Lord, to understand how I need to change if that is what you want of me. So we ask your blessing on our efforts that we might not (coughs) use this time or waste this time of Lent, but rather may it come to us in the form of your teachings and... Your voice. So we thank you for this time tonight. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.